Emma has asked me to spend a few minutes talking about the story of our church. The message she's got is the story of us, but she's going to locate us deeper than just our initial roots here as the parish of Churchill. But I wanted to go under the surface and talk about the last 235 years, just for a few minutes. And then Emma's going to go even deeper than 235 years. She's going right back to the life of Jesus, etc., etc. Most of you will know, although some of you won't know, that the parish of Churchill is Australia's first parish. It's the original church in Australia. This is Churchill. They come up off the first fleet. They had a church service just down the road here. They said a church should be built as quick as possible and put on what they called in 1798, Churchill, or earlier, Churchill. You're standing on it. You can't tell it, but the water drops down to Barangaroo and Darling Harbour, and it drops the other way to the... So we're on a hill. You can't tell with the buildings. And this is Churchill, and they always intended for the churches to be built on this hill. St. Patrick's Churchill, Scots Church, Churchill, Presbyterian, and us. So we're Australia's first church. You should know that um, the original church was built by Richard Johnson, who came off the first fleet and held the first Christian service in Australia. Uh, the parish of Churchill is part of the historic Christian church who for nearly 2,000 years has declared the gospel to the world, but we're also part of the English Reformation and of the evangelical movement of the 18th century that brought the gospel to Australia. The first ministers to Australia were evangelical Anglicans. The first minister, the Reverend Richard Johnson, was rumored to be an enthusiast. You like that? An enthusiast. We're part of an ancient and modern Australian story, and we're part of thousands and thousands of individual stories that have centered on and have been connected to this space for 235 years. And you and me, we as a community, we're a part of that. Sydney's first church was never called St. Philip's, and that's because Richard Johnson built it with his own funds, petitioning Philip, the governor, cap two L's. He said, I, want, I need a church. The governor wouldn't give him the money, so he built a church. They wanted to call the first church St. Philip's after the first governor. That's two L's. And I think the reason why this church was never named was because uh, Richard Johnson didn't want to name it after a governor. So it was just called the Wattle and Daub Church. Reverend Richard Johnson and his wife Mary taught a school there uh, with 150 to 200 children. It's the beginning of public or of education in the colony that has led to public education eventually in the state of New South Wales. This building was burnt down on the 1st of October, 1798. The foundation stone for the original St. Phillips, or the old St. Phillips, was laid by Governor Philip Gidley King in 1800. That's not the building you're currently sitting in. Uh, it was called St. Phillips Churchill, two L's, that is, after the governor. You don't name a church after the governor, but they did with its distinctive almost 50-foot-high uh, tower. It stood in Lang Park, opposite the road from 1810 to past 1856. Uh, it was called the ugliest church in Christendom, and that was true until Christchurch St. Ives was built. I come from that church. But that church wasn't built very strongly. It was built by convicts, um, and this is the only record we have of it. And so the foundation stone for the current St. Phillips, the third St. Phillips, the one you're sitting in, now 1L, not 2, because we named it after the apostle, not the governor, uh, was laid by Archdeacon William Cowper in 1848. That foundation stone is just on the eastern side of the church and just down the bottom. 
If you look closely with your little iPhone, you'll see it down there, 1848, but it was eventually consecrated by Bishop Barker in 1856. I think it took time because of the gold rush. I believe that's the case. Tower was completed in 1858, and eight bells were given by John Campbell, uh, and they were hung that year. The parish is custodian to Richard Johnson's Bible and prayer book, which were used by the Reverend Richard Johnson at the colony's first Christian service on Sunday the 3rd of February, 1788, one week after disembarkation. That Bible and the prayer book is on display, and if you've not seen it, most, a lot of you have, but if you've not seen it, I would love to show you that Bible and that prayer book after the service. Garrison Church came along in 1840. It was the old St. Philip's that was overflowing that built the Garrison Church before they moved here. So while St. Philip's planted the Garrison Church, the fabric down there is older than the fabric here. Does that make sense? The two parishes came together in 2012 uh, to be united on mission. St. Philip's, along with the Garrison Church, is one of the very few buildings in Sydney with almost 170 years of single, united purpose. That is to worship God through Jesus Christ. And that's what you're doing here tonight. It's something we continue to do every Sunday when we meet to do exactly what we are doing right here today. That's the short story of us. It's now time to hear the longer one. I'm going to pray as Jane comes forward to read scripture. Father, guide our thoughts as we hear your word. Speak to us. Show us your glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. John chapter 5, verses 1 to 17. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. 
Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello. Let's pray. And Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us, showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. We ask you now to teach us through your word so that we may be ready to serve you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you, Justin, for telling the story of the St. Philip's Parish. Um, I did do that part at 4pm. I'm going to go way off here at 6pm because this is my home. 6pm has been my home since I started coming to this church. So that's what we've got. <laughs> um, but I feel as though Justin really does uh, tell that story well. Uh, and so I heard him at the Open Sydney a couple of weeks ago and I thought that would be a good way to start. So thank you. But the story of our church is not our own. It belongs to God and he is the author of it. And over time and space, he has written people into that story. He has written us into that story. And the story of our church is part of the story of the church, the universal church, which is part of the story. A story with a narrative that's centered around God's interaction with humanity and that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And in fact, every story in this narrative whispers his name. Now, the object of Christian community is a person. It is Jesus Christ. He is what we here together hold in common. He is what we hold in common with those who have gone before us in this parish and those who went before them as well. And so we exist because of him and therefore we form our community around him. 
Put another way, this 6 p.m. community would not exist without Jesus Christ. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul paints the picture of what life uh, will look like for Christians in life and in community. It's a model for how to live as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. So I will be using this passage as a springboard to explore with you the story of us. So I hope that you have it open in your Bibles. There are Bibles in the ends of the pews there. Um, Colossians chapter 3, because that will be really helpful for you to be able to see where we're going. There is a, an outline in the service sheet. Um, there's just three points there. Um, so hopefully for the, those one or two who take notes, uh, you will find that helpful. We are part of the story, that same story that the church in Colossae inhabited. And we're going to consider what these words say to us here these words written almost 2,000 years ago, still living and active, carried throughout history and time by the Holy Spirit to us here today, with the power to give us understanding, the power to challenge us, to bother us, to encourage us, and to transform us. So we will be considering these three things. First of all, our identity, verses 1 to 4. Our clothing, verses 5 to 14, and our life together in verses 15 to 17. When we understand our identity in Christ, we can put on the right clothing and our life together will be transformed. Paul tells us in Colossians 1, 3 verses 1 to 4 who we are. He lays out some foundational truths about the identity of those who are in Christ. And he provides a succinct summary of the story or the life cycle of a Christian. He said, you are died with Christ, but you are raised with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God in, the, in heaven. You are hidden with Christ in God and waiting with anticipation for the return of Christ in all his glory. And later on, in verse 12, Paul refers to them as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And then in verse 14, as forgiven. These are markers of who you are in Christ. These are the things which tell us who we are. This is who we are in Christ. It's our collective identity in Christ. We are bound together by faith in Jesus, not by experience. This question of who am I is existential, it's complex, and it's multifaceted. And many of us will spend a lifetime trying to figure out what the answer to that question is. Now, for some, it might be a question that you ask yourself every day. For others, it might be a question that you ask when you're going through a particular season of life of change or upheaval. Or for some of you, it might be when things are actually going along nicely, but you've still got this feeling of who am I, that question that you're asking. Perhaps, it, perhaps uh, you see it as a question or a problem that has to be solved. Well, I wonder how you would answer that question if I was to ask you. And maybe over dinner, those who are over there, uh, we can ask that question, who am I? I decided to turn to the wisdom of artificial intelligence and so I asked ChatGPT, who am I? 
I have to put a caveat in here. I actually asked the question, how do I find out who I am? Because when I asked, who am I, ChatGPT responded by saying, I don't know enough about you, so I can't tell you who you are. So I reframed the question to fulfill these purposes. So how do I find out who I am? And ChatGPT said, discovering and understanding your own identity and sense of self can be a complex and deeply personal journey. I agree with that, but it's more of a statement than an answer to my question. It then went on to list eight suggestions for how I might go about finding out who I am. And here are the things that came up. Self-reflection and mindfulness, journaling, seek professional help, engage in self-discovery activities, talk to trusted friends and family, educational and personal development, accept change and growth, and embrace your authentic self. Now, they're all things at face value, which are not bad. And in fact, a number of those things I have done myself uh, as I've sought to answer that question of who am I? But I think these suggestions do ring true with the 21st century post-Christian view on how to find your true self. And there are some helpful suggestions there for how to proceed. But the suggestions here all point to the fact that you need to be proactive in determining who you are, that it comes from within. And that's very much the narrative of the world, the Western world that we inhabit. Try harder, dig deeper, you do you, let your, your footsteps direct your, sorry, let your feelings direct your footsteps, your identity bubbles up from within. But what if identity was determined by something outside of yourself, by a higher power, by the higher power? The Bible reveals to us that for those who are Christian, that is exactly how identity is determined. In his excellent book, How to Find Yourself, author Brian Rosner puts it this way, at the most profound level, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, what sets the course for your life, for my life, and keeps it on track is your identification with Christ and imitation of him and being known and loved by God as his child. Putting on that identity will determine the sort of man or woman, worker, friend, neighbour, father, mother, son, daughter that you will become. Because it's only once you understand whose you are that you can understand who you are. For those who have put their trust in Jesus, these verses in Colossians, they define us. Even when there's a disconnect between what you know is true and what you feel about who you are, these words remain true. Now, old mate Tom Wright here says, it may not feel like it. Learning to believe what doesn't at the, mo at the moment feel true is an essential part of being a Christian. This is what the life of faith is all about. And that resonates. I don't know if that resonates with you. It certainly resonates with me. Um, that there might be a disconnect between what you know is true and the way that you feel, but that's where faith comes in. Faith is believing in something that you can't see, but something that you can trust. So look around you. You can actually do that if you want to. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> um, if you look around, 
This is what we have in common. This is what is central to who we are and why we are here. And Jesus Christ is to be our compass. We are to be like him with Christian identity and we are to imitate him. And our identity in Christ will impact every facet of our life, who we are as people, who we are as Christians, who we are as a church, who you are as in, in your family, who you are in your workplace, and who we are as the 6pm congregation. This determines what our purpose is, why we gather, and what happens when we gather. And already a number of those things we've done tonight. We've said the Apostles' Creed together, declaring faith of the ages that we believe in, that one central faith. We've sung songs of praises and we'll continue to do that. We have heard God's read, word read and we are now um, thinking about how it impacts the way that we live. So the question is, how does our identity in Christ impact the way we live? Paul goes on uh, in Colossians 3 to give some instructions for how to live as one who is raised with Christ. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. If you belong to Jesus, then you already belong to the new world. Let me say that again. If you belong to Jesus and are in Christ, then you already belong to the new world. And we spent a couple of weeks earlier in the year thinking about resurrection hope and what that means. So we had to set our hearts on things above. But Paul also says that we had to set our minds on things above and not on earthly things. In the original language, this verse uses the word seek, which I think is a little bit more helpful because it implies that setting your mind on things above will require ongoing activity. There's a sense of intentionally pursuing the things above. I think also an implication that it's not easy. It's an ongoing thing, day by day, sometimes hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I find it much easier to set my heart and my mind on earthly things, on the things that are below, the things that are around me, the people that are around me, the things that are easily accessible and tangible, the things that bring instant relief and comfort, things that I can touch, taste, see, feel, and experience. And I wonder if you'd agree with me that our, post, our modern post-Christian world places a high premium on the here and the now, which makes these words in Colossians 3 countercultural to that world, that post-Christian modern world. And it really does require power from the Holy Spirit to enable us to set our hearts and our minds on the things of the risen Lord Jesus. And it requires ongoing learning and relearning. We are defined by Jesus and our identity is tied up with being raised with Christ. And we are to be actively setting our hearts and minds on the things of Christ and recognising the supernatural help from the Holy Spirit, which really is supernatural. Um, we heard uh, Jane read from John chapter 15 earlier at Discourse, where Jesus is talking with his friends before he goes on to, uh, to die and then rise again. And earlier in John chapter 14, I think it is, Jesus talks about how the Holy Spirit will be coming. And he talks about the role of the Holy Spirit, that he will be there to teach and to remind, convict you 
And that's what he does. And so as we set our hearts and our minds on the things of Christ, the supernatural help of the Holy Spirit is there. But it does require active activity from us and diligence and patience and discipline and unlearning old habits and disordered patterns of thinking and help from those around us. And it's only once we understand our identity in Christ, then we are free to live according to his ways, which will mean putting on the right clothing, which brings us to our second point, our clothing. Thought about our identity in Christ, and now we move on where Paul goes to thinking about the right clothing. And Paul uses such visual and practical and tangible language in the verses that follow. He uses the metaphor of putting clothes on, something that we all all resonates with us all because we do that um, every day, putting on and putting off. And he says, your old identity is without Christ. So he says, take off your old identity and self with its practices. And he likens old identity and self with its practices to clothing that's been taken off and disregarded and put to death. And Paul doesn't leave us in the dark regarding what these practices are. In fact, he's quite explicit And I'm going to actually read these. If you've got a Bible there, I'm looking at Colossians 3 um, from verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And then in verse 7, You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is where we're headed. But I think that's really uh, helpful to read, because those words are strong and they hold power. And there are two main areas of behaviour which Paul lists as typical, comfortable, and well-worn items of clothing that are associated with the old lifestyle without Christ and that are now to be done away with, to be abandoned, not left on so you can put other things over the top. And those two things have to do with, uh, firstly, the earthly nature and the sins of the mind and flesh. And if you cast your eye back over those verses, you'll see those things. And the second thing is that they're to do with the way we speak. Both those two areas are core, central areas of human life, both involving great potential for very very good and also for evil. And Paul says to put them to death. Whatever belongs to the earthly nature, put it in the tomb. Thanks, things that are motivated by allegiance to self and the world rather than allegiance to Christ. And he uses strong language. Now, Paul's words, I imagine, would have been radical to the pagan culture of his day, and I think they're almost as radical today as we hear them talked about. You used to walk in these ways, Paul says, in the life you once lived. Now, as I've been reflecting on these verses and the implication that they have for me and for the life in our church, I realise sometimes the natural inclination might be for me or for others Uh, to cover those behaviours up. Perhaps there are things that you feel ashamed of that only you know. Now, if you're uncomfortable with what Paul is saying in these verses, 
because there's sin in your life that's not acknowledged or dealt with, then please know that Christ died for sins once for all. He died to bring you, me, us to God. We believe in and worship a forgiving and gracious God. So turn to him in repentance and receive forgiveness in the name of the risen Lord Jesus. The beautiful part about being in a community such as this is that we have a responsibility and a privilege to walk alongside each other as we live this life. We do that with grace and with patience as we traverse the many valleys and hills and everything in between on this journey that we're on. To remind each other of God's never stopping, never breaking, always and forever love. We have the responsibility and the privilege to speak the truth of the gospel in life to one another. And in the 14 years that I've been a part of this local church, and particularly the 6pm congregation since we started 13 and a half years ago, I think, is about right, I've been so thankful for those all seasons of life, the good and the bad, but those moments when these words have been true, where people have reminded me of the truth in love. They've directed my eyes to scripture, reminded me uh, of God's goodness and his grace. So lean into that. I do encourage you to make the most of the relationships that we have here. This is a special congregation, both here and those who are on the live stream, of which I think we have probably about 15 people on our live stream as well. And so it is really special and uh, it would be wonderful to keep thinking about how we can do life together, continuing to remind each other to take off the old clothing and to put the new clothing on. Because the reason for all of this is that we have a new identity in Christ. We have put on the new self, new items of clothing, and Paul uses the present and active imperative, which just means that we put these things on, but we have to keep putting them on. It's not just set and forget. It's an ongoing activity. Notice that Paul says that as that happens, we are being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So the process is active, ongoing, and dynamic. And it brings unity in verse 11, Paul says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now these words feel particularly poignant and difficult to read and ponder, given what's going on in our world, in the Middle East and Ukraine and lots of different other places, and in our country at this point in time. But these words are true, and they will be fully realised when Jesus returns. So I encourage you to take comfort in these words. The point of the new clothes which the Christian must put on is that the new life is about unity, about the whole community coming together in love. So old divisions have to be done away with, whether social, cultural, geographic, or anything else. Jesus the King is present and active in everyone and indeed everything and nothing lies outside his sphere of sovereign love and care. So what are the characteristics of this new clothing that we are to put on? Let's have a look at Colossians 3 starting at verse 12. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, 
humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So first, we are to clothe ourselves, put on the clothing of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of gentleness, and patience. Now, the interesting thing about this wardrobe that we're putting on is that really you only know if you are putting those clothes on when you're in community with other people, right? Or, I mean, as you think about them at home on your own, you would be, know whether you're being kind or humble. But it's only when we interact with other people, other humans, um, that we see our own insecurities and our own inability sometimes to be compassionate, kind, or humble. Um, and I wonder if you agree with me that it would be a lot easier to not have to wear these garments around other people. <laughs> Secondly, Paul says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against each other. Forgive as Christ forgave you. Now, I recognise that those words can be hard to hear, uh, especially uh, when there's been a grievance um, against uh, someone or someone towards you. And so uh, if, if you want to explore that a little bit further, please come and talk with me or Justin uh, or Dave or even Kat uh, a little bit later. But we are called to forgive as Christ forgave us. And third and perhaps most importantly, it says put on love which binds them all together like an overcoat of love. And these are not just words from Paul. They're words straight from the mouth of Jesus. Jane read them for us just a few moments ago. And here Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So putting on these clothes are indicators of our new identity in Christ. They are the clothes of the King, and he is the ultimate model of the clothing that we are to put on. Well, I wonder how you think we are going as a church with this clothing of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Perhaps a more pertinent question is, how do you think you're going with putting this clothing on? How would you rate our clothing against the model of Jesus uh, that, he, that Jesus gives us? Perhaps this is something that you could discuss over dinner uh, or at your community group. Um, you could think about what sorts of actions and words would make these behaviour patterns come true in your life and what would make them come true in our life, our collective life? Well, when we're secure in our identity in Christ, we've taken off the old self, put on the new clothing, our life together is transformed. And so the final section, the story of our life together is that Jesus is the one who shapes it. I can't go past German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer's description in his book, Life Together, a book I first read probably about 25 years ago when Justin and I were at one of the uglier churches in this city over at St Ives. <laughs> um, but we, in a small group, Justin led a, uh, the youth ministry team and we read this book. And it, at, for me, at the age of 25, I think, yes, that'd be right, this was quite um, transformative for me because here's what he says about life together. He says, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No community is more or less than this, whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily fellowship of years. Christian community is only this. We belong to one another 
only through and in Jesus Christ. He then goes on to ask the question, what does this mean? Glad you asked. I mean, first, that a Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. It means, second, that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. And it means, third, that in Jesus Christ, we have been chosen from eternity, accepted in time, and united for eternity. Isn't that a wonderful description of what it means? When we come together, it's only because of Christ. We stand and sing the songs because we're in Christ. We get to come together in the freedom of the world that we live in because we are in Christ. We get to listen to God's word read and talked about because we're in Christ. We get to gather together because we are in Christ. And in verses 15 to 17, Paul adds more detail to the picture of what our life will look together. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Well, I wonder what you think that peace is like and what we are to do with it. I find these words challenging and yet comforting at the same time, which is often the case with the scriptures, I think. I think they're challenging because in so many ways, the concept and notion of peace seems so elusive and out of touch and distorted in our world, and yet comforting because it isn't peace that bubbles up from within. It's peace that comes from outside ourselves. It's the peace of Christ. And it's interesting that Paul uses the word let here, which implies, I think, that you need to be open to the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. You need to yield to it, to give way to it, because we are called to peace in Christ. And Paul's instructions are not to be read individually, since he bases his instructions on the calling Christians have received to peace in one body. That's the language that he uses. So this is a communal exhortation here. Paul continues, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. I love that Paul uses that word dwell there. Sit, he sits among, the words are to sit amongst us. I think there's more going on here than simply digesting knowledge or information. I read a great quote by Tim Quat. Tim Keller that said, meditation on the Bible is more than just intense thinking. When Paul talks about the word of God dwelling richly in us, he's clearly talking of something beyond mere assent to information. It's something that's, that has started perhaps in your mind and your understanding, but it's changed. It's, it's gone through your whole, whole body so that it informs your heart. It informs the way that you relate to each other. It informs what you do, what you think, what you say, how you present yourself, how you treat people. So when the words of the Lord live in your heart, they change your life. So how do we allow the word of God to dwell richly among us? Well, I think it's already happened. It's already happened this, this, tonight as we've gathered together. But I think in summary of this particular verse, I think we are to teach one another the word, to admonish the word, whereby admonish is to warn or to advise, to remind each other of the truth of these words, and sometimes having hard conversations, speaking the truth in love. We're to sing the word, and we are to pray the word. And we start by reading it, by feasting on God's words regularly, 
thinking on them, reciting them, mumbling them over and over to ourselves and to each other, letting them bother us, expose us, challenge us and change us. And such dwelling, I think, comes about through an active cultivation of mutual ministry of teaching and gospeling to one another, which means that we do this together. It's not just about Justin or myself or Dave or whoever it is, the minister speaking from the front. This is what we do when we have our conversations. It happens in community here on Sundays. It happens in our community groups. It happens in phone calls. It happens when you send a text to someone or you receive a text with a some lyrics from a hymn or um, a passage of scripture. And this mutual instruction is to be musical. I won't sing. I, I would like to, but I won't. But songs that faithfully convey the message of scripture and the gospel are an ideal medium for sharing ministry within Christian community. When we sing together, it's possible for us to speak and pray the same word at the same time. And sometimes when you're singing words, the lyric just might speak to your heart in a way that other things haven't. And I'm so thankful to God in my life that he has used music in that way. And in fact, this morning, our own Graham was playing um, Crown Him With Many Crowns at the 8.30 service, and we sang the sixth verse, which sometimes gets left out, which is a travesty because it's got the word potentate of time in it, and that he is creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. And as we sang those, I can't believe I remembered it, but as we sang those words, that's what was happening. It's this mutual encouragement that we're singing these words together, being reminded of who God is and what he is like. So congregational singing is an act of instructing and encouraging one another. Well, finally, notice to whom we are singing. It's a dual audience. We sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So we sing to God with hearts that believe, but we also sing, as the verse implies, to one another. He says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These exhortations that Paul gives are drawn together in an all-encompassing instruction relating to whatever you do <laughs> in word or deed. So there's nothing left out there. Every action of, and word of the believer in every context is to be performed or spoken as one who bears the name of the one true Lord Jesus. There is no sacred secular divide in Paul's mind. Every act should be an act of Christian service. And what's more, in all things, the follower of Jesus should be characterised by thankfulness to the Father through the Son. So the story of our church belongs to God. He's the author of the story, but we are woven into it. And we're active participants in God's ongoing story of redemption. And this influences our story in this moment in time. God tells his story in and through us. And if our lives are to be shaped by the story of scripture, we need to understand two things well. The biblical story is a compelling unity on which we can depend, and each of us has a place in that story. God has placed us here at this moment in time. And our place in this story, our existence as the 6pm community, owes everything to Christ. And when we understand that our identity is in Christ, we can put on the right clothing, and our life together is and will be transformed. Let's pray together. 
Our dear Lord, we thank you for this community. We thank you, Lord, that um, because of the risen Lord Jesus, Lord, we gather here together in the name of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you will help us discard those things of our old life. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to put on the clothing of compassion and kindness and humility and patience. And we pray, God, that you will help us to forgive others the way that you forgive us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to love you and love people. And we pray, Lord, that you will be pleased to use this congregation, Lord, for your purposes, that you will grow us in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he's like, that you will grow us in our desire to serve him alone, and Lord, that you would change us and transform us as we gather together, as we read your word, as we mumble it over, as we learn from it, and as we um, meet together in the name of Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.